Conversations with Dwyer. I'm Matt Dwyer. This is a music podcast, and speaking of music, that song that played me in is titled Hysterical. It is from the album Haunted Painting, and it is by Sad13. And my guest today is Sadie Dupuis, who is Sad13. She's also from the band Speedy Orts. And if that's not enough creativity for you, she has a book of poetry out called Cry Perfume. In the link to in in my show notes, there is a link to all things Sadie Dupuis. You can find the book. You can find her band camps. You could buy two books of poetry. She has two books of poetry, both linked in on her website. So you could go buy two albums from two different bands and two books by Sadie Dupuis. Go buy things in twos and support music and, well, frankly, poetry and books and all things art. Um, this is a really great episode. There is a wee bit of extra content on my band camp. Not my band camp. Dwyer. What's up with the brain? On my Patreon, you can go to themattdwyer.com. That'll link you to all things Matt Dwyer. And you could become a Patreon subscriber for $5 a month. You get all kinds of extra content, bonus episodes, blogs, sometimes videos and photos, all kinds of stuff. Patreon. MattDwyer.com will take you to all things. I won't lie to you. I have struggled with this intro. Not just this one that you're listening to. This is probably the tenth time I did it. I don't. Sometimes this just happens where I end up in some weird funk, and then I'll go to edit the episode, and then I'll notice a mistake, and I'll be like, "Fuck! I can't let that be." Well, that's been happening with this one, and you could see I'm still struggling. But uh, hey, I've got two kids. And a lot of shit to take care of. <laughs> so sometimes my brain, not the best. And last night, my dog barking in the middle of the night. Just for the fuck of it. Just waking me the fuck up for no goddamn reason. Um, but speaking of my website, themattdwire.com, if you need a website, you could go to kellyrdwire.com. My partner, the person who made those kids I was aforementioned, builds websites. And she does some big ones big podcasts and actors and musicians and she does everybody kellyrdwire.com if you need a website just do, and you know what if you hire her to do a website that'll take more off my plate and then I won't be so fucked up in the head and I could get through these intros easier I don't know what it was just I would say one thing wrong and it seemed right you know how it goes we all have those days um, also, I have a project coming up. I think I can finally announce. It's not officially announced, but uh, I've been mentioning for weeks that um, I've been doing something with the Climate Emergency Fund. Well, I'm going to announce it here. I produced a compilation album. Adam McKay, director of Don't Look Up, Anchorman, Vice, he executive produced it. All the money on this record album it's not going to come out in record form all the music on this album will benefit the climate emergency fund and the activism to fight the climate crisis i did this with sub pop there's a list of there is a huge great list of artists on it and and a lot of them have been on this podcast fake fruit mud honey kyle field the death valley girls Moby, it's a the, there's 20 artists and all but a few have been I I will uh, but this will come out October 28th. It will be download only. It will be streaming. All money goes to the Climate Emergency Fund, and there's a link in the show notes to Climate Emergency Fund. Oh, Cloud Nothings is another one on the on the old record. I I can't. I'm not gonna list them all. There's 20 of them. But anyway, keep an eye out for that. You can follow me on social media, and that'll um, that will you know I'll I'll plug the shit out of it. It's going to be great, and it all goes to a good. Oh, and Yatsin Nicholas Gil Allen, who's been on the podcast, did the cover art and a song, and the cover art is just incredible. It's really incredible, and all the money goes to the climate emergency fund. That's pretty. I'm I'm you know I've done some cool shit in my life. That was, this is probably the coolest next to the kids I had who are really cool and who are Death Valley Girl fans for the record. 
Um, I believe that is it for the intro. Please go to the show notes. Always a plethora of information to help support art and the world in my show notes. And please enjoy this episode with Sadie Dupuis. Oh, I just watched you. Literally, I saw your name pop up on the screen, and I was watching you unbox your uh, unbox your book. I'm so talented at unboxing. <laughs> <laughs> you should, you know, we could work together, and we could pitch an unboxing series with you. This is like the fourth time I've unboxed something. Really, only a post-pandemic behavior, <laughs> and it takes me so long every time. I don't know what to say about the thing I'm opening. Uh, it's good that I <laughs> don't have too many things to unbox. <laughs> well, I was very excited, but I was, Thank you. I was, I was alarmed by how much paper that uh, was in there. There was a lot of paper. Yeah. How, that's your second book, right? It's my second book. Yeah. How's that fucking feel? I think the last one probably came in bubble wrap, so maybe it's better <laughs> this time. <laughs> Well, I'm uh, glad to see the world is progressing with your books. Yeah. Um, it's great. I'm, I'm really happy to have this book almost out, and it will be fun to tour on it and interesting to see how things have changed in the book touring department. <laughs> uh, seems like a lot of places are doing less and less, which is great. Keep people safe, but yeah, excited to get out there a little bit. Are you, do you just do the book and not the music and the book when you do the book tour? Yeah, I cannot play solo. I won't do it for really any reason. <laughs> it's just like one of the most miserable tasks that I once in a while subject myself to. Um, so book tour, you know, it, I, I'd have to play solo if I was going to play, and I don't like doing it, so I don't. But you do reading solo? Yeah, yeah, but that's different. Uh yeah, it is. <laughs> I, I paused and then I got self-conscious because I was like, it made it look like I was judging you, but I wasn't. But I wasn't. <laughs> what is, why do you hate playing solo? I think that I, if I were playing solo, what am I playing? An acoustic guitar, right? I, I feel like I'm often not writing parts on guitar that translate well to that. And I could rearrange everything to be performed that way, but I just don't think it's not going to be good. It's not going to be like up to what I want the songs to sound like live. So why subject myself to that experience? <laughs> <laughs> Have you given it a go before? Have you, is, did you learn by error, so to speak? I've played solo. I just, I never enjoy it. I always think, God, that was awful. Uh, and I just don't have to do things I find awful, I guess. No, you don't. So that's... <laughs> <laughs> um, it, but yeah, being on stage alone is a weird... It's just kind of strange in general. And I mm -hmm. sometimes, at least like, like stand-up comics, they seem to be weird in general, so it sort of works, I guess. <laughs> I don't mind reading, you know, I'm on stage by myself reading. It's really just performing my own music. Like I love karaoke. That's kind of a solo performance, but I just don't feel like it. The way that I'm writing music is so about the arrangements that it just feels really incomplete to pare it down to one instrument I'm accompanying myself with. Um, so I've tried doing it with if I'll have like a, a track situation and I'll have a drum machine and I'll send bass out to an amp and I'll play guitar, or I'll play keyboard. Um, but then it just feels like a whole big production for what reason I'm making it so complicated. That's making me miserable. It's just all funneling down a path of <laughs> I should not play solo because I wind up stressing myself out. Do you, you don't record that way. Do you, do you do most of your own stuff? Uh, production wise? Yeah. I guess so. Yeah. I didn't, I guess. Yeah. I produced the last sad 13, last two sad 13 albums. And, um, in terms of demoing for speedy, I'm generally, you know, it doesn't get to the band before it has 30 layers that I made at home. So, um, that all feels very intrinsic to the songwriting and makes it weird to try to reconfigure. 
Right. And are you, we're, you've been kind of, not kind of, hi. <laughs> that's kind like my of. midwestern thing coming out where i say kind of for no fucking reason at all and it drives me i thought ins- ope was the thing ope yeah oh not in the chicago ah i don't know i think some chicagoans might disagree oh well they probably oh. oh excuse oh. me oh oh yeah i do that too now that you, yeah, yeah now that i've been brought uh, to that's it, your region speaking yeah Anyway, <laughs> is, is that how you've always approached songwriting? Because you've been writing for since you were like very young, right? Yeah. Um, I started writing songs when I was really little. And at that point, I guess I wrote on like a piano. So it was, or, you know, just sang a song. Um, but when I started playing guitar, it's around the same time that I started recording. So I was always kind of writing stuff to have a lot of layers. And when I started doing Speedy, it was my home recording project. Um, So everything was played by me and yeah, recorded with a sometimes three layers of drums. Um, So really I think the writing process for me is the recording process and the arranging process. So when I'm like, Oh, I got to play this song and I'm just playing chords on a guitar that feels so like not a representation of the song. Uh, so I don't do it. (laughs) This is going to be, I'm going to link to this podcast. People ask me, friends will ask me like, do you want to play something solo? And I don't know how to, I always like find some polite excuse, but the answer is really like, it makes me feel awful to do. So I don't want to. Well, that's respectable. I mean, and it's like, it's not like you, if that's the way you construct your music, then it makes total sense. But do people get that or did, are they kind of like, what's your deal? I usually just make up some excuse or being on book tour is a great excuse. Cause I'm not traveling with equipment. Right. It, it, do you just are you just hitting bookstores with this tour for the most part yeah i think there's a couple where the bookstore is having us do it at like a bar and they bring the books but it's mostly bookstores is it uh is it kind of is it uh, this sounds like a dumb question but i'm like is it similar to the way you tour or is it a little bit with with the band or do you get a little is it a little bit more cushy (laughs) because it's just you it's, it'll be me and another friend who also had a book out uh, last month, Michael DeForge, who's a graphic novelist, and we've done reading tours together before. So that will be really fun. The thing that's different is just like, it's your whole day when you're touring for music, you know, you have to get up and drive however many hours to load in at 3pm and you do an hour of that and then you sound check for an hour and then you know, maybe you get to eat dinner, probably not. You're setting up merch here. If you've injured your vocals over time, as I have, you got to be warming that up. Um, presumably you're playing with some bands you'd like to see. So you're watching them at the end of the night, you're selling merch, you got to load out, get to the next place. And so your whole day, like 9am to 2am is consumed by the touring. Whereas on a book tour, we're doing kind of shorter drives and the only thing i load in is a box of books um maybe the whole event is like an hour long and then you can go have dinner with friends or family or you know someone you met who's cool and it's great and you make no money so that's the other thing that's different oh that's great you don't you you don't sell t-shirts just for the fuck of it we might sell some t-shirts because it's gonna there's some gas money going into this but uh (laughs) You make whatever, you know, the bookstores are buying from your distributor. So you're doing book sales, but it's like whatever royalties eat back to you. So <laughs> that's that's one big difference. <laughs> you could kind of just combine it with a crime spree and, you know, knock off some liquor stores just to go along the way. I'm not saying that's not the plan. <laughs> um, I don't know if this sounds like a dopey question. But like I, w- when I was researching you, it, you just as a young person, it seemed like you were a bit more advanced, at least I, if I compare it to myself. <laughs> but I was like, do you feel that? Does that make sense to you? Is that like you seemed like you were already into music, you were already into art, you were already into writing. And I believe 
some activism, if I'm not mistaken. That's why I'm so behind now. I, I did too much when I was little. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. I, I think everybody sort of winds up with the things that they're into when they're young. I just relentlessly trudged on in, in those arenas. So it maybe looks like a more of a longevity, but I, you know, I have so many friends who are still really into music and played when they're young. They just work in different fields now. Um, I just am the, one of the foolish people who <laughs> st- stayed doing it despite the poor compensation and exhausting lifestyle. No, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of kidding. I can't tell. Yeah, uh, no, I can. And I understand. Because <laughs> I was, I guess, I mean, I knew what I wanted to do, but I also was kind of stupid. Or like, not stupid, but like naive and dreamy about it. But I just got the sense that you were a bit more focused and grounded and you were in like a music camp and all that stuff. Right? Yeah, but I didn't think I would work in music. And it was like drilled into me. You will not get to do this as a job. Um, so I always just did it because I love playing and I love going to shows and I love listening to music and being part of music communities. But it was like, I have other day jobs and other things that I think I'll wind up doing. So I, I, and I was doing a totally other job and for whatever reason, this is the band since playing since I was 13, this is the band that people liked and wound up with some opportunities that led to me quitting that other career track I guess who was drilling it into your head that you that you wouldn't have it as a job or is that I mean sort of a universal sentiment that it's really hard to make money as a musician and as one who's working in that field now and has many peers in the field it's pretty hard for us to make money Um, and both my parents had had kind of music industry jobs in the 70s and even then it was like it's pretty impossible to make it doing this by the time I was playing music mid two thousands. Um, pretty unheard of to succeed. Your dad was like an A and R guy, right? And he did some worked with some, like I remember seeing Alan Vega, which was pretty, pretty fucking hip, right? I don't know if he worked with Alan Vega, but he worked with a bunch of no wave bands um, in the seventies as like an A and R person. Was he like the New York uh, No Wave scene? Yeah, yeah. Both my parents were from New York or close to it. So he was like probably in. That's pretty pretty. What were you? Did that affect your life at all, like directly, or was that too 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 early? So I was born in the late eighties, and I think by nineteen eighty, both my parents were out of working in music. Um, so it affected my life in that my dad played me cool records and uh, we'd go to shows together and that was kind of the thing we could bond over. Um, but neither of them was like, and, and also that my dad played piano. Um, and so he kind of taught me some of that when I was young and that was my first instrument. Um, but I think, you know, they'd been out of working in that field for like a decade by the time I was was born so it was more that both my parents were big music fans and would play there i saw like a tweet the other day that i can't remember the phrasing of it but it was like if you grew up listening to wfmu or wfuv like i don't want to hear from you you didn't work to be cool so you're not cool um my parents were like playing those radio stations for me when i was little so how does i don't get how that doesn't make you i don't know because you didn't have to work for it i get it but it's like that's not your fault like that's some people are just fortunate. That's a, somebody's bitter is what I'm getting at. And All it's right. Not, fair enough. <laughs> I just, I keep coming across stuff like that on Twitter where like I saw some guy was saying like the younger, this generation doesn't have to find their scene because they could just Google everything. And, and I was like, man, it's like, you're not supposed to be doing that. Like you're square to be like these kids today. It's like, you still have to find stuff. You still have to work. And you, but maybe old man yelling at cloud will 180 and be cool again. <laughs> yeah. We could kickstart that today. Let's do it. <laughs> Did you, so do you recall what any of the shows were that your dad took you to? Um, I 
remember I remember some shows I went to before I had like asked to be going to shows. Um, and I remember seeing Cheryl Crow at summer stage. Um, and that was pretty cool. I, the first show I remember like being asked, like we're not being asked that I begged to go see was no doubt at the Roseland. Um, and my mom took me to that one, which was amazing. Uh, it would have been whenever return of Saturn came out. So like 2002, I think maybe 2000. I can't remember. Can we fact check that? Yeah. Well, I'll get my people on it. <laughs> okay, cool. So just like insert a robot saying the correct year that that okay. album came out. Um, that's when I saw No Doubt at the Roseland. Um, let's see. I saw Death Cab for Cutie. I saw Pretty Girls Make Graves. A lot of the indie rock stuff was more like my dad's scene. And I remember like our big, I didn't, I lived with my mom. So I was like primarily raised by my mom, but I would have visitation with my dad and our big like bonding thing was going to UCD stores or like the Virgin mega store. If we were having a big outing. Um, and my dad was really into like collecting CDs. So I would steal a bunch of his CDs and, uh, listen to those and then bring them back next time I saw him or not. Do you, did your parents respond positively when you were like showing signs of music or were they knowing the industry were they sort of hesitant? No, they were really encouraging of, of me playing music and, um, you know, writing it and recording it. Uh, even if they didn't always like what I was <laughs> writing or recording, but it was just like, that's not a, that's not a job that a person can get anymore. So make sure you're doing other things. <laughs> uh, well, that's pretty, like, you kept going, even though you kept hearing don't. <laughs> it wasn't like don't. It was just like, that's like your fun hobby. And it was. Right. When did you decide that this wasn't going to be the fun hobby and it was going to be your path? I don't even feel like I decided. Like, I was, um, I worked all these random jobs and then I wound up, I was trying to to get any kind of like editorial job that wasn't freelance because I was making myself really miserable <laughs> as a freelancer living in New York in 2011. Um, and I feel like I applied to every single magazine that is now shuttered and sometimes three and four interviews and then didn't get it. And meanwhile, I'm doing all kinds of wonky freelancing and keeping weird hours and like barely making enough to cover my rent. So I applied to a couple grad school programs that I knew were funded and came with a, like a salary, a stipend. Um, and I wound up getting into UMass Amherst for poetry and I was there to teach writing. And I was like, cool, this will be the thing that I can do. I'm not going to, you know, play a party store that's turned into a music venue four times a week for losing money every single day. And, uh, you know, freelancing all through the night to make my deadlines. Um, so when I moved to Western Mass, I'd done all this for this grad program that was to take the place of my freelance insanity. Um, I put up all this music that I'd been home recording sort of as a way to like try to play a local show or make some local friends and music who might want to play in a new band with me. And people just liked it more than any of the bands I'd played in before that. Um, we wound up getting just some nice shows to kick it off um, at the venues that I'd always wanted to play. And so it was like I was in school and I was teaching college students and that was kind of what I thought I'd be doing with my life. But more people were emailing as time went on. And it was like, do you want to tour with the Breeders? Yes, obviously I want to tour with the Breeders. Do you want to tour with Stephen Malcolmus? Like, obviously I want more than anything to do that. Um, so trying to keep up with those kinds of offers and also working at a university teaching classes, I just was exhausted. Um, and we were making more money from the gigs than I was from my like teaching salary. So this is my long winded way of saying, <laughs> I didn't think it was going to happen. Uh, and it was only when I was literally making more from like my weekend stuff than from my day job that I was like, okay, if I did this all the time, I think it'll work out for now. That's fucking crazy. And from what I know, you're a big pavement fan and I'm going to take a stab in the dark that you're a big 
Breeders fan by what you said. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, but that must have been crazy to suddenly be like getting those kind of offers, right? Like, And it was like, take the offers or you have to quit the job or take the offers. Like you can't continue to do both. Um, and I, I just didn't know how long tour offers would keep coming in. So it felt like the time to take that opportunity and see what would happen with it. Were you scared at all? Or were you like, fuck this, I'm, I'm doing it. Um, I, I still am always like, I'm going to have to do some other, go back to some other thing. Uh, so it, it still sort of feels like this impermanent <laughs> thing that I'm lucky to get to do. Isn't it and great? I might as well just say yes to things I'm interested in while they're coming to me because they may not always. So yeah. So like some mixture of fear in there that like, Oh, this won't last forever, but that's just the truth of, touring 10 months of the year you know it's hard to do that forever yeah i mean i don't it's crazy because i don't think it ever stops for anybody that i've read like john c Riley before the fucking whatever that tv the winning time series he's on he was like sitting at home going i'm never gonna work again and it's like you're john c <laughs> fucking Riley. like of course you're gonna work again i mean i'm not quite john c Riley. i just think i'll do other forms of work than tour especially since the pandemic i've sort of increasingly been taking other kinds of jobs but um yeah it wasn't like a decisive i'm gonna give this all i got it was like i could tour with my hero or i could keep this job that i like and not know what it's like to to try touring full-time um was there a element of fear of touring with your hero that your hero might not be your hero anymore and that sounds like a foo fighter song i think <laughs> there goes my hero <laughs> not my hero anymore um everybody we've we've supported is really nice and it's not like a like like i would consider steve my friend at this point i don't know that i thought that was going to happen when we said yes to that tour um but really I, I, what i've noticed the, the thing that i'm always kind of like biting my tongue when i see some kind of newer artist and they're immediately developing a reputation for treating people poorly. Uh, I feel like I don't ever see that with the the people who've been doing this for 30 years. Um, they're nice to everybody. They remember who's working the show and they make sure to thank people. And um, I feel like you have to be nice to make it past a certain point. So yeah, maybe there was some fear at that point, but I'm usually expecting people to be pretty nice at least in the indie rock spheres that, that we're working in. Yeah. It's just, I don't, I, I, anybody I know who's in a creative field, it's just like that. I don't know. Even for me, I'm like constantly afraid. Like sometimes I'm like, well, I guess like post office. <laughs> <laughs> post office is great. Oh yeah. I got no, that's a, that's an important job. Yeah. And I mean, I'm a working class guy. So I th like, that's my f roots. So I always think like, you know, that's where I'm just going to end up. Cause that's what I is am. in is in mail mail. No, I mean, my parent, my dad was in construction and my mom cleaned houses. So, but yeah. like, and I was like, I'm going to do theater, which was pretty much telling them like, I'm going to murder people. Like that was just, <laughs> <laughs> just as, just as horrifying of a statement. I mean, what did I, I saw some tweet about Barry, uh, today because Bill Hader was like the only person at the Emmys wearing a mask. And the, the tweet was that Bill Hader looked around and wanted to write about the most evil professions he could see for Barry, which was murderers, cops, and theater people. <laughs> <laughs> theater people can, I mean, that's a, it's a, it's, I agree with Barry on that one. <laughs> and do you, do you, still have that fear or do you just do you just plow through it or do you just you, you can't really right you can't just hang in the fear what's the fear that i'll like stop not do this more but it's like i'm not afraid of that really because because i always did other jobs and still worked on music so i don't like fear doing other jobs i guess i'll, I'll still work on music 
do you, and this sort of goes, and I feel like I, I wanted to apologize at the top of this because I've initially, I reached out to you because we wanted to talk about, or I wanted to talk to you about Spotify and I thought, Oh yeah. And the reason I couldn't do till four o'clock today is we had like a, like a meeting with a politician about Spotify. Oh, what politician? I'm probably not supposed to say oh. anything about it, okay. but, well, we don't have, but I was like, I can at least allude to it. Um, Cause yeah, I thought I had somebody who was interested and was like going to get on board. And then like, because it's showbiz and people probably were like, oh, there's going to be no money in a Spotify documentary. <laughs> <laughs> Just like there's no money in Spotify. Yeah. But I, it's like, I don't, it's fascinating once I started like Daniel Eck is a fucking like weird dude. Like nightmare, nightmare person. Like yeah. outside of his whole company, which is awful. Like, did you know he wanted to be a musician? No. I mean, doesn't that like just make you go, oh, okay. Is that why he's like, just make more songs? Yeah. like Just I, make more songs and someday. He quickly realized like he couldn't do it. Like I think in his late teens, he was like, oh, I'm no good. So I'll just, I don't know, steal. <laughs> like, yeah. Is he punishing the rest of us? Is that? <laughs> I know. It's like very dictatorish. Like, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm not an artist, so I guess I'll invade Poland. <laughs> I think in his mind, he thinks he's helping artists, which is why it's so, all the messaging from that company is so totally warped. Yeah. There's a lot of videos where he's like, he's thinking, I don't like, I'm like, I saved music by completely devaluing the price of your song. <laughs> but okay. it's like, I'm like, is this messaging and you know, you're evil and corrupt or do you honestly believe this? Cause I think most awful people sincerely believe their bullshit. You think that he believes that, that he's, he's doing good? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think so too. But we have so many musicians saying, actually, no. And they point to the examples of success of like the very few people who garner 1 billion streams. Um, and that's not most working musicians. So it's not really a model that scales. Did it irk you? Like it irk i never use the word irk by the way <laughs> hey it's a word as good as any thank you but uh like i was i'd be irked if you didn't like it <laughs> thank you again <laughs> um but like with neil young and like people against being against joe rogan protesting joe rogan and taking off their music i'm like shouldn't you do that for the musicians instead of like fuck joe rogan yeah we definitely it was curious seeing people speak out about that one issue in particular who hadn't chimed in about artist compensation rights, um, but sort of whatever gets people's attention to the issues at hand at Spotify. I actually wrote an article about this for Spin um, where I spoke to like 10 musicians about, yes, Joe Rogan was an issue and great that people are protesting, but there's like 300 other reasons you could also pull your music down from Spotify or at least just speak out against the, their payment practices. Um, so it's a, it's an ongoing conversation and certainly a lot of musicians have been motivated to speak out about how poorly they're compensated. Um, and it's, Yuma has worked on a, um, a bill that I don't know how far it has gotten to this point, but they're certainly working with um, representatives to craft that. So it's getting in front of people and making some progress. I'm surprised like how many people in the industry and even musicians I know use Spotify. And I know yeah. it's, it's like, you know, Apple isn't much better, but it just Spotify, it's just baffling to me. Like, or I don't know. Can you, it, I don't use it. Um, but I do use Tidal, uh, which pays a little bit better. I mean, these are problems with all those streaming services, right? Like Tidal and Apple pay a little bit better, but at the end of the day, it's all worse compensation than we would have made from some other avenues. Um, the thing that was so incredible to me after, because I did use Spotify for a few years, and, and often I'd use it to find things that I wound up buying. So I think a lot of people do use streaming as a discovery tool to purchase records, and that's great. And whatever brings people to finding out about something in the same way as you know radio did or record store displays did, that's great. Um, 
Spotify sounds awful. When I switched to Tidal, I was like, wait, I can hear a thousand more details. So not only is this company paying the worst, it sounds the worst. Yeah, I don't, like, I don't know if this is, like, I feel like it then doesn't that sort of lower everybody's standards of sound? Like, I know that, uh-huh. I'm not, okay, I didn't know if I was being pretentious or crazy, but that seems to me like, because we have like a smart speaker in my kitchen and it, and if I put on a record, it's like, I'm like, why do I fucking use this smart speaker? It's shit. <laughs> yeah. But that's like, so it's problematic across the board because that to me is like, if I listen to something recorded with the quality and I throw on headphones or something and smoke a sweet doobie, like it's 1970. <laughs> <laughs> I can't smoke pot. But it's like you, re- it's like a whole different world. Yeah, it's a, it's a pretty awful audio quality. Um, and beyond that, they're engaged in pretty blatant payola practices in terms of they offered some tier where artists can accept an even lower royalty payout for prioritization on their playlists. So take a little bit less money and some more people will stream your music for next to nothing, um, which it's not even clear if everybody were to opt into that how could you guarantee any kind of priority? It's a real creepy, icky way to get artists to take even smaller fractions of pennies for their work. God, that's so fucked up. And it's, yeah. what to me is like, I mean, to say, how is that legal in the United States is... Well, that's what the... It's, it's it, to many people's perceptions, that is the definition of payola. Uh, so that's been part of what the Justice at Spotify campaign has been about. Um, and because Spotify doesn't really publicly share, and I'm speaking, I should say, I'm an organizer with with UMA, the, the Union of Musicians and Allied Workers, but I'm not involved in this streaming work at all. This is just stuff I know is like following along as a fan of, of their work and um wishing that streaming payouts could be a little bit better, but Spotify doesn't disclose what their sort of behind closed doors deals are with major labels. So we just truly don't have a great sense of how all this accounting is coming together to pay artists so little. Yeah. Someone told me that they have deals where like, like Bieber will get paid from somebody else's music just to keep Bieber happy. Yeah, but they don't, it, it, nothing is publicly disclosed. So we don't even have a great sense of how anything's calculated. Is that legal? Like, did they, don't you have to disclose or I guess not? Or is that's, it because he's Swedish or some shit? That's what we, that's what UMA's campaign has been sort of demanding greater transparency on what these deals are um, and how payouts are calculated as a result of them. But Spotify has given absolutely no comment on this campaign, despite the many thousands of signatures that have come from musicians, despite coverage in the New York Times, uh, in the Guardian, in outlets all over the world, uh, continue to give no comment. Do you find the politicians responding responding to this? Do you do? You, is there hope in that field? Because I feel like that's the only way this gets solved is solved is regulation. Is legislation? Yeah, yeah. That's that. I mean, and I'll emphasize again: I'm not involved in the streaming committee, so I'm not part of those weekly meetings that they're having. Um, I happened to go to one today because it pertained geographically to me as a union member and as a constituent. But uh, that is the hope. That's the that's the way that anything will change in streaming compensation. So. Uh, if we got any any politicians listening, <laughs> hit up Yuma if you want to throw your weight behind a streaming resolution. What what sort of things do you have to do, or not just in gen- you, but like that artists had to do to make up for that lack of income, other than endless touring and merch? Is that like pretty much all they can do? Yeah, that's the only way I'm really seeing income is from touring, and I haven't been touring since the pandemic, really, I'm kind of just dipping my toes back in. Um, so for a lot of artists, it's like doing other gigs or pivoting to other kinds of paying gigs within music. And then there are plenty of people who are touring constantly. Um, but there's the financial risk of COVID and obviously the health risks as well. Um, so I've had plenty of friends who, 
have profitable tours planned and then wind up losing a bunch of money when the entire band got COVID on the first day, the second day. Uh, it's a real crapshoot. Yeah, a slew of people got COVID after South by Southwest. I knew a number of people who went down. Yep. Did you, prior to COVID, were you one of the, were you touring that constantly? Because I'm just curious if, yeah. like, if, was it weird to just suddenly be like, okay, I'm home? <laughs> I had not. I moved to Philly in somewhere between late 2015, early, I think I started subletting in Philly in late December of 2015 um, and really moved here in early 2016. And I had not been home for more than two weeks uh, consecutive since moving here until the pandemic. So that was a real adjustment. I'm so used to living out of a suitcase, um, making all the income from touring pretty much. So it's been, it's nice to feel like I have a home life now and to feel like I know my city a little bit better after having already lived in it for six years. But, uh, yeah, it's been a, a tremendous adjustment and now trying to go back to touring. I'm like, Oh, I got, I got a little bit comfortable not sleeping on a different person's couch or floor every day. Um, so I think it'll be a slow build to back to normal touring. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, I, I've already been like reclusive and weird about leaving the house and then the pandemic happened and I'm like, I really don't want to leave the house. Yeah. And like, and my thing, even before that, I mean, I toured all the time, but it's different. It's like I'm at work and to be socializing after the show is like another aspect of that work. It's like my, my old customer service brain kind of kicking back on when I, not, this is a, you know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, that's a cynical way of putting it, but it's still like, it's like I'm, I'm going out and I'm socializing and it's part of, that's part of the job. Um, I never left the house other than touring even before the pandemic. So I got a little too cozy in some ways um, with the not going out at all thing. I can relate. But also it's like, you know, when you look at your future, you're like, do you want to be touring when you're 60? Like, I mean, there's that, that's, I mean, I live in Los Angeles and I'm thinking that already, like, do I want to pay this much rent when I'm fucking 60, 70? <laughs> like, mm. I'm going to be like the oldest drug dealer in history. <laughs> I mean, I have plenty of friends, not, I have friends in their 60s who are touring and they seem to have a great time, but they're at a different level of their careers than I, I probably will ever get to. Um, in part by nature of just being older and being active in a time where you could kind of pivot more into a career. Um, I would tour in my sixties though. I like traveling. It's kind of, uh, I, so I mentioned that my parents were split up and my mom pretty much had custody. Um, but my dad had visitation and he lived two hours from my mom. So I was constantly in the car or on the train back and forth between them. Um, and then if I had a holiday with my dad, we'd, you know, we'd go somewhere. So I feel like, you know, even if it's like to stay at a weird motel that's somewhere, you know, between their houses. Um, so I feel like traveling kind of got into me early and that feels more normal to me to be able to move around a little bit. So I think I'll, I'll still, as long as people want to see me, I'd be happy to tour it as long as I can. Yeah. I was going to ask like sort of on a Freudian level, if that's sort of like comfort and home for you to be moving. In yeah. I, I, I always feel out of my mind weird when I get home from a tour because it's a little bit more natural to have the day oriented around that schedule I laid out for you earlier of like get up at you know nine on the road at 9 30 gonna be driving eight hours um I was a bad freelancer in 2010 2011 <laughs> and I'm bad at it still I'm like I'm when I get off this call I'm like I see the 12 things on my list for today I'm very bad at pacing myself when there's not a <laughs> imposed work schedule and travel is really good at imposing that schedule. Yeah. Cause if I don't have a schedule, I'll fucking take a nap. Like I'll just like, Oh, it's nap time. Why not? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I used to be that way where I, 
like when I moved to LA, I was like, okay, I'm going to sit here for a while. Cause I had like moved six cities in one year, which is crazy. That's a lot of cities in one year. Yeah. Good Lord. I mean, I had, I just didn't own much, so it was easy, but mm. I had to tell myself like, you have to stay here for a while. And I, cause I was immediately like, no, Portland, which I regret. Yeah. I won't fucking lie to you. Cause now I'm <laughs> <laughs> Portland's cool. Portland's way better than Los Angeles. <laughs> I'm one of those, my friends who also tour are always making fun of me because I like everywhere and we could be playing in a town or a city that everybody else is like, Oh God here. And I'm like, yes, I'm so excited to go to the like one bookstore. I remember from however many years ago or the one little breakfast spot. Um, so I'm pretty content traveling. Yeah. I mean, I love, uh, there's nothing better than a new city, especially cause I toured for three years with the theater company and it was just like, that, that exact thing of like, where's the bookstore? Where's the record store? What's happening? Where do I get yep. drunk? <laughs> <laughs> Where do I get drunk? And like on the road, you, it's like you can get drunk on dollar beers and stuff in some of those weird cities. Yeah. Do you have, I, I, you probably don't have time to do all that much, right? Like thrift shop or whatnot? Mm, I don't tend to do that because I don't have the like suitcase real estate. Um, so the thing that I will buy on tour is books and then I can mail the ones I finished home. Um, so I accumulate a lot of books on tour. I kind of stopped buying records on tour because of fear of meltage and clothing. I just don't have the, the suitcase real estate. Um, but I like to go to museums and definitely parks, nice places to eat, vegan <laughs> breakfast. <laughs> uh, but we have we have some amount of time, and we try not to route the tours miserably anymore. Too. That's that's key. When you walk into a bookstore, what is the section you hit first? Um, depends what kind of bookstore. But if it's, I like if it's a used bookstore. I generally am checking out poetry, see if there's some unusual or like first edition thing. Um, but I really like going into bookstores for the book recommendations more than anything. So if it's a, if it's a bookstore that primarily stocks new, um, if they have like an employee shelf, like John recommends this, I like to check out all, all of what the booksellers are uh, hyping. Oh yeah. That's a good, yeah. I'd love. And unfortunately I think, I feel like they're coming back, but used bookstores really took a fucking hit there for a long time. I've been to some great ones this year. Yeah, but I maybe feel like yeah. it's kind of on the upswing again. Yeah, um, which also gives me hope know. because I think maybe people are going fuck Amazon, which I think really fuck hurt the used bookstore. But like I will, there's two used bookstores in Los Angeles, and one is tiny, but it's packed with fucking amazing. Like I've walked in there. Which one? It's called Reed. It's in. Uh, Eagle Rock on Eagle Rock okay. Boulevard. It's tiny, oh. and I've walked. I walked in there, and I was like, I want a book on Charles Mingus and Duke Ellington, and they had two great ones, and it was just like random, but they had them. And then uh, the last bookstore, which is downtown Los Angeles, at Fifth. Yep. Yeah, that place is and records as well is great. Yeah, they have really cool stuff. I, I like stories a lot in LA too, and that's for the similar reason. I mean, they have used on new, um, but it's really well. I think the the recommendations are always really interesting there. So I often buy something kind of sight unseen um, just based on it being an employee recommendation at stories. Yeah. And it's kind of fun knowing like the stores that where the booksellers have your taste. Um, so you can just kind of scoop up a bunch of things at once and they're all going to be, if not great, at least pretty good. Plus stories has a coffee has coffee which just it's like uh sense memory shit for chicago because all uh, most of the used bookstores had coffee of uh, even if it was just a shitty like carafe <laughs> so, yeah like, chicago has some really amazing bookstores yeah i'm really spoiled by that that world of just a lot of it but like my it was like almost every neighborhood it was almost like every neighborhood had a bar and a used bookstore and it's like really what else does one need I like when they're, I love a bookstore. So if I, let's say I, I did completely abandon touring. Um, I think I'd be a good bookseller 
And I love bookstores that also have like a cafe or bar component. So let's say I, I'm a business owner someday in a business that isn't just like an LLC for the sake of checks that we get at the end of the night touring. Um, coffee shop, bookstore, bar bookstore. That's my bread and butter. That's... See, anytime I've been in a bar, bookstore... But it's like not a business model. It's like similar. I don't know. I don't you got to have a death wish in some ways to open a bookstore bar. Yeah, but if I'm drinking and I get a buzz, I'm buying way more fucking stuff. Like it's smart on the buy- person who owns the place because I will get drunk and suddenly I'll want every fucking record they have and God created credit cards to fuck people like me. <laughs> See? <laughs> With this attitude, I'm going to be pitching my new, my new life next week. That I yeah the first time I've been in was in this is why the bookstore is not it's gonna not only is it not profitable because the money just goes basically to my publisher because their copies are purchased through the distributor I'm gonna be buying books because we're reading in bookstores and I'm like I'm so excited to see what they're recommending I'm just gonna accumulate so many books I have no problem what do you tend to (laughs) like to read I like a little of everything uh yeah, I try to alternate between my fiction, nonfiction, poetry, comics. So uh, well, I'm I'm decently, yeah. I just I feel like, and I don't know, and I've talked about this before, and I had a poet on, which I kind of broke my musician thing, and had the poet laureate of San Francisco on a f- couple months ago. Tango, who is that? Tango Eisen Martin, who is cool. He's great, and he's just like one of those dudes who says like a simple thing and it's just very poetic. And you're like, why can't I speak like that? (laughs) Yeah. Why can't I speak like that? I asked him if there was like any hope like for America being a better place. And he said, he's like, the history is a graveyard of empires. And I was like, fuck, that's like, yeah, that's how you say that. (laughs) Damn. Um, but I feel like there's been a resurgence with poetry too, as of late. Like I feel like I see more people putting, or maybe I happen to know people putting out more poetry. I don't know. Do you feel that way? There's like an interest in it again. I think so. Poetry is often kind of an insular world in the same way that like, if I know someone who plays noise music in Chicago, they know the person who does it in like Providence or something, (laughs) Uh, you know, uh, So to me, and I got involved in poetry when I was like 20 and have stayed pretty, if not, um, if not, you know, always publishing, I'm, I'm generally keeping up with what's new and trying to go to readings. So to me, it it feels like it's always been, um, active enough, (laughs) but certainly I think like there's been a lot of through social media, maybe some people who didn't get indoctrinated into poetry as young as I did, which is not to say I was super young as like a 20 year old, but um, people are coming to poetry like via Instagram or via TikTok. And so I think that maybe has put it onto folks radars who otherwise might not have had exposure other than like the Canon stuff that they picked up in middle school and high school. Right. I don't know. That's like pretty yeah. <laughs> vaguely speculative, but I just felt like it used to be, and I know this is a, you know, 50 years ago, but like there would be poet books of poetry that sold well and there would be like notable, they would be celebrities like for lack of any better example, Allen Ginsberg. But like, and I feel like I see that like Tongo, the guy I mentioned, he's got like a following and news people do pieces on him. I'm like, this is a poet. Like, this doesn't happen anymore. Like it's, I'm thrilled. I'm fascinated that it's happening. Yeah. I think there are poets that, that folks follow in a, um, I, I'm, I feel like I, I'm too close to have perspective (laughs) 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 because I'm like, I have friends who are poets and I think they're like really famous for their poetry and they'll kind of laugh at me when I make those assumptions. So it's all relative and, it is just, in the same way, like that, you know, poetry books used to sell however many copies. Um, so, so did albums. And we still get like huge profiles in major publications about musicians who are selling the amount of copies that would have been like negligible in the early 90s. Um, so maybe we've just scaled to. What am I trying to say? Do you know what I'm trying to say? 
I do. Maybe like success is less tied to the amount of copies you've sold, and uh, yeah, um, and I'll 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 fucking agree to that. I and I'm, I know that you're relieved. I agreed to it. I, I'm sure I could sense because <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I don't know. I'm not sure if I know what I'm saying. I was following it. Poetry has always rocked. There you That's go. Where I, yeah. Um, I know that this is maybe. A, I don't know if this is a simpleton question, but I would curious if you would have. If somebody said, I want to write poetry, would you have a advice that you could give them or a suggestion of like, don't think or whatever the fuck it would be? Um, I think I'm trying to like one advice for someone who's trying to write poetry for the first time. Are they reading poetry already? Because I think that's really the the main thing. Like pick up some, go to a used bookstore. They're always going to have some anthologies of like, best American poets of the eighties. Like here's an anthology of poets from this region. Um, and just read through and see what kind of things you like. Find some more books by that poet, uh, see who they're thinking and their acknowledgements might be some other poets in there worth chasing down. I think just having a, in the same way that it's, you certainly can make music without having heard any, but it doesn't, it's not the easiest challenge. Um, just having read poetry widely, I think, and having a sense of what things you like and what things you don't um, can be an inspiring way to get into it. Do you have any poets that you, that because you said you have these friends that, are there poets that you would be like, hey, read this person? Um, that inspiring Some you favorites. I really like Morgan Parker's poetry. Um, I really like Dorothea Lasky. Uh, C.A. Conrad is a pretty big one. I, I feel like I follow a lot of publishers, so I'll kind of look at what they have new, and if anything seems interesting, despite not knowing the writer, um, I'll kind of seek those out. And Wave Poetry has a lot of books that I really uh, like a lot. Um, Don Meachoy's DMZ Colony from a couple years ago is like one of my favorite books of what decade are we in? I don't know. Just say the past <laughs> 10 years. Um, <laughs> But it just, yeah, I mean, and one thing that I think trips people up who are my friends who like, I think could be into poetry. They're certainly into like weird experimental music. They're certainly into art where they don't, visual art where they don't necessarily know the meaning of a photo. Um, I think people get really obsessive about because they were trained in high school or something to annotate a poem, to know its meaning. Uh, that really gets in the way of me enjoying things I kind of want to just read it and let it flow through me and maybe there's certain images or certain sounds that are exciting to me and I'm not really obsessing over knowing what every single poem means um that's for like rereading and going to the author's reading uh so yeah I think if you're if you're going into reading poetry wanting to know what every single poem means that's going to be a barrier to entry so you don't have to you're free that's I. That's good advice because I think that's, and it also just makes me think of how fucking bad our educational system is. Because when you were saying that, I was like thinking of myself in high school, going, "Man, they just taught me the wrong way." <laughs> <laughs> I said it's the wrong way. It's just like it's one way, and it's not one that I was very attracted to. So I didn't like poetry in high school. I kind of was like poetry stupid. Yeah, you know, I'm gonna. I like um, Robert Christgau. Like that's real writing. <laughs> Uh, and only when I was in college and I took a poetry class with a really great teacher who was like, that's fine. If you don't like poetry, like just try, like, let's just check out a few things. You don't have to worry about what its meaning is. What does it make you think of? Um, that was kind of a, a more inspiring route for me. Yeah. I had a friend. It made me want to try. I had a friend give me some books when I was 19 and they were crass and filthy poems, like not, I, I, that makes it sound like they were like jokes about sailors or something, but it was like, you know, Bukowski, which, you know, when you're 19, that's groovy. Oh, I loved the be <laughs> adored all of that stuff as an 18 year old. Yeah. My friend gave me that. It gave me like notes of a dirty old man and then gave me some, um, basketball, uh, what's his name? I'm flaking basketball diaries guy. Uh, Jim, Jim Carroll. Carol, thank and you. And for a guy who'd like been going to high school and read, you know, what they shoved in your face, it was your your mind melted. And I was like, oh fuck, this is what writing can be, or what worlds we could go to, and it changed everything for me. 
Yeah. And I think that's, and because you weren't obsessing over what does every single thing mean, right? Because you can't discern what a lot of those guys were going for. Yeah. Oh, I had no idea. I mean, I was so into like Burroughs when I was a 17 year old compared to the other things I was reading in high school because what the fuck is going on for 10 pages? But it sounds amazing. And some of the images are amazing in the same way that I can appreciate a lot of visual art. Did you find yourself as I was, I guess? I mean, then I was sort of attracted to this seedy underbelly world. I was like, I want to find that. Of course, then I did, and it was a big mistake. <laughs> <laughs> like me personally entering the seedy underworld? I don't know. Like, I was fascinated by it. Like, yeah, and I sort of wanted to be a part of it or experience it, and I found elements of it live when I was living in Chicago. I, like, lived in a weird sleeping room that was, like, the size of a closet and, like, with weird old men frying bologna. And then I slept in a closet in Chicago before. I'd lived in a pantry for a while. Hey. <laughs> Where was your closet? Uh, it was a friend's closet, so I can't really claim it as my own, but it was a great place to sleep on tour. <laughs> they had a rug in there. It's more than you can say on like a cement basement. Yeah. Have you spent a lot of time in my hometown? I'm um, just on tour, but I've always really enjoyed it. And were the weather more agreeable to me, it would certainly be a short list of cities I'd live in. Yeah, what drew you to Philly? Um, a lot of my friends had moved here. I no longer had a reason to live anywhere in particular after having... I had stopped working at UMass Amherst and still lived there for a few years, and a lot of my friends had moved away. Um and I just had a lot of friends in Philly. I loved a lot of Philly bands, always had a good time on tour. And I was sleeping on a friend's couch and saw an apartment for rent, kitty corner from hers. And that was the apartment I rented. <laughs> so really considered decision, but is um, this the pink but room? I'm sticking around. I think I'm, I think I'm a, a Philadelphian. It's a cool city. I like it. Yeah, I love it. I know you're vegan, but if you, gone to Badia Pizzeria. He's like the pizza god of the world. I am very vegan. I have not been, but I... I didn't have, know if he has... Certainly vegan. friends have gone. I thought he had options for the vegan folks. He might. So my sad sob story is not only am I vegan, but a few years ago, I found out I was allergic to wheat. Um, and I used to just say, fuck it, I don't care. Let me have this. And I would just eat some anyway. Um, but I started to get rat pretty bad rashes and hives or even like um not an anaphylactic reaction but respiratory uh so i I basically can't have any wheat at all anymore and it's miserable so no beer either eh? some beer is okay i'm not gluten i'm not gluten intolerant there you go um so if it's only rye or barley that's fine do you drink a lot on the road um i try (laughs) not to really because It's like exhausting. (laughs) It's exhausting to be traveling that much anyway. And if you're hung over while doing it, it's just like hard to get through the day. Yeah. I mean, I'm with you, but I've heard others say the opposite. We're like, yeah, you have to, like you have to self-medicate. And I'm like, okay. But like, maybe that's just a certain people's physic. No, I think some people do respond to touring that way. And when I, when it wasn't my job, I was like, great party night. This is my, I don't have work the next day. Like the show will be my excuse to drink a bunch. But, um, after however many months of, of touring as a full-time job, I was like, uh, if I have, I can maybe have a drink a night and it'll be like a vodka soda. And that's, (laughs) that's about it. (laughs) Do you have any music coming up? Cause I know it's been about a year since you've had an album? Yeah, I think it's been two. Um, I had a reissue out last year that I wound up remixing from home. And that was so time intensive that I, and it was like a double LP. So it felt like a new album in some ways, um, just because of the amount of like production that had to, it was recorded so badly when I was first starting speedy as like my solo project, I had no idea what I was doing. So I had to do a lot of work in remixing it to get it, to be able to hear a kick drum, for example, uh, important things. 
Um, so in terms of like a new, a new speedy Ortiz record, I think the last one was 2018. Um, we have one recorded. I don't have any idea when it'll come out, but, uh, yeah. Are you waiting for the whole vinyl thing, which seems to be fucking everybody? We need to get it mastered. Everything's just been really slow. Like, it would be very boring to list all the reasons that um, it's not done yet, but it's just like, oh, we need to reprocess this certain these audio stems, and the person who can do it is between other gigs, and now someone has COVID, and something that should have been done in June is it's now September, <laughs> so uh, and now it's up to me to kind of parse through some stems and get things over to mastering. So maybe having told you this kind of boring half version of the uh, audio saga, I will get it to mastering this week. We'll see. And the book is out October 4th? Yep. I remembered your boxing. Yeah. Unboxing? Put it back in that box and (laughs) purchase it at your favorite local indie bookstore. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Conversations with Dwyer and Sadie Dupuis of Sad 13 and Speedy Oritz. Please remember, there's a part two on my Patreon. You can go to themattdwire.com. It'll link you to that. Become a Patreon subscriber, $5 a month. If you can't afford to become a Patreon subscriber, feel free to just tell a friend about the show. That would help me out so much. Just tell your friends about the podcast and maybe like it or some shit on social media or whatever. Thank you. I wanna 